For further scripture reading today, we turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, at verse 9. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, because you are of Christian faith, you understand that what some have called the blessed hope lies on the foundation of what we gather to celebrate this Easter Sunday, the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then that hope extends to and embraces the expectation of his return. The Apostle Paul actually wrote as if he thought that it would not be very long before that would happen. And I read from 1 Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But you know now, we are approaching 2,000 years since Jesus on the very eve of his crucifixion said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Why the delay? Another apostle, Peter, ventured an explanation. Peter wrote, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, be that as it may, 2,000 years are two millennia. And to think of those we love, not to mention Paul and Peter themselves, just being out there somewhere, in some sort of limbo, awaiting their own resurrection, isn't a completely satisfying thought. Do you like cemeteries? I'm not asking for a show of hands. One of the weird things about me, according to those who love me, is that I actually do. I loved standing in your historic cemetery this morning and looking about as I had the honor of conducting your sunrise service. Graveyards can be interesting places, but they are quiet and lonely places. There is nothing there 
Nothing there at all that suggests the quality of life that was once enjoyed. Now, if you go to the ancient city of Jerusalem today, you quickly realize that Jerusalem is a city of tombs and monuments. Jesus' tomb, by the way, isn't the only empty tomb there. Most of the tombs are empty, either because of grave robbers or the natural decomposition that time and the elements impose upon human remains. There's nothing there that affords much in the way of reassurance. We occasionally visit the places where our loved one's mortal remains reside, and that can be a good thing, a helpful thing to do. We may weep there, and we Christians may rejoice that that is the place where one day they will rise at the second coming of the Lord. Yet nothing suggests to us that the person we once knew, who lived and breathed and ate and slept and grew up and married and bore children and worked and celebrated and finally suffered, is in reality there in that place. A few years ago, our older daughter's former college roommate and beautiful friend Jaquetta unexpectedly fell ill and quickly died. Sometime afterward, we visited Jaquetta's mother and found her virtually immobilized by her grief. She would go to her daughter's grave almost daily, but real comfort continued to elude her. And what words then, apart from one day we're going to see them again, might give such a person true and lasting comfort? I've read books and articles by many theologians, but the only world-class theologian that I ever knew and ever saw and heard was the German Jürgen Moltmann. He was widely known as the theologian of hope, and when he spoke, he recalled the occasion when a fellow professor had died, and he had dropped by the widow's home to pay his respects. And there he found himself caught off guard. Dr. Moltmann, the widow said, can you tell me what has happened to my husband? The same question arises in some Christian traditions, and perhaps this may embrace your tradition. Gather at All Saints Day in the autumn and listen to something called the roll call of those friends who have departed during the year before. When we think about such persons, we recall something about each one. He sat near me in the fellowship hall. She and I attended the same class at the Y. We did committee work together. I remember seeing her at the Christmas Eve service, or maybe I hadn't seen him in such a long time. Honestly, I thought he might already have died. Time was, all of these people we remember were so real, so apparent. That smile, that handshake, those little quirks and personal oddities, those friendly greetings, those subjects we used to talk about, those words of encouragement we used to share. But now they have gone from us, and their bodies lie outside in the cemetery, beneath the soil, or in a mausoleum, or columbarium, and the question arises, what has become of them?
It used to be that people would say, well, of course, they have gone to heaven. And there, in the words of an old song, they dwell with the immortals. The Lord has come to receive them into his heavenly kingdom. It is just as we saw in the text read a moment ago, a homecoming, a victory celebration, a true worship, all characterized by the absence of that great ordeal, that tribulation that humans experience on earth. Heaven is a beautiful place where daily needs have disappeared, earthly threats are absent, and fear, disappointment, doubt, guilt, and grief are no more. It is a place where God has wiped away every tear from their eyes. And all of this, we have assumed, began at the very threshold of death. A few years ago, my former pastor up in Greensboro, Dr. Randall Lolly, recalled the passing of his younger brother, Tom, who at the end of his life seemed to become aware of a presence in the room someone unseen by the others who were gathered there. There he is, said Tom Lolly. There he is, there's my rock. Just as had been promised, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Now there are people today who question such an otherworldly focus supposing that our eyes should always be on this present life, on its pleasures and its problems and what can be done about them. However, it is important for Christian people to remember, heaven is not a vain hope. Heaven is not a dispensable doctrine. Not as long as anything good is in decline or in jeopardy. Not as long as the created world, as Paul taught, is subjected to futility and to decay. Nor as long as there are wars and rumors of wars and nations rise against nations and famines and pestilences and earthquakes abound. Nor as long as life in these bodies that we have today is fragile and temporary and mortality reigns through accident and illness and aging. As you sit in your pew today, you may look about the room and think about those to whom you said goodbye in years gone by. And again, that question is not going to go away. What has become of them? Once again, we know their bodily remains are in graves or niches awaiting the resurrection, but surely, surely that is not where our loved ones are. They may indeed abide in some intermediate state where life, such as it is, continues upon earth, but the quality of their experience is not less than it was, nor less even than the life they will live in the new creation when the trumpet will sound. Theirs cannot be some lonely, isolated, unconscious state of waiting, for again, the Bible describes a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and the Lamb robed in white, bearing palm branches of victory. All the while they gratefully witness that the victory is not theirs, the victory is not the world's, the victory is indeed the Lord's, for salvation itself belongs to our Lord.
You know, to me, the single most compelling picture of God's promise is Dr. Luke's portrait of a condemned criminal suspended to a cross alongside Jesus of Nazareth. Now, biblically, this man is described as a malefactor. That is the word that the King James would employ. An evildoer, a criminal, a robber, perhaps a violent revolutionary in defense, in defiance of Rome. But none of that mattered anymore. For now, he was simply a man about to die. And looking about for some small suggestion of hope to mitigate his despair. In spite of the duress of that moment, something about Jesus suggested to this man godly innocence. And so he listened and heard others gathered around the cross making reference to the figure of the Messiah. Messiah, Messiah, he must have thought to himself. The one who comes at the end of days. The one who will bring a completely new world and a completely new age. Messiah. Then it was that this unhappy man turned. And you remember what he did. He registered one small request. He didn't ask to be rescued from his plight. For he knew he deserved it. He didn't even ask to be saved from hell, for he probably assumed that was inevitable. No, he only asked to be remembered, to be remembered and not forgotten on that great day which would dawn in the future. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. But here's the foundation of human hope. Recognizing the smallest and most basic form of faith, and that would be faith that is no larger than a mustard seed. The Lord promised this man something far, far better than mere remembrance. It isn't the blessed hope of one day being resurrected from the tomb, though that would surely happen. No, it was something far more immediate than that. It was the promise of today. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And what better destiny, we should ask, could be afforded to a single, simple human believer to go immediately from this life into God's presence in a state of conscious and unparalleled delight, so happy and wholesome that it could only be described by using the word paradise. Wasn't it Paul himself who in a vision had visited paradise and returned to speak of the place? Who exulted, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in another place, so we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. At home with the Lord. That's where they are. Those folks whose names are etched on headstones, hundreds of headstones out in that cemetery. 
That is what has become of all of these, our friends, at home with the Lord. That is what Jesus promised. And that is what he guaranteed through the power of his own resurrection on the first Easter morning. For every one of these, having confessed with their mouths the Lord Jesus and believed in their hearts that God had raised him from the dead, every one of these has adjourned to the happiness that Jesus has prepared for them. For as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And so may it be in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.